0: Robert Clive, the black hole of Calcutta, a trading company thrust into the role of kingmaker and colonizer, an empire built by accident. Tragedy, fast bravery, and exceptional greed, these are the ingredients for our story this season. The story of the Battle of Plassey and the birth of the British Empire in India. In today's episode, we'll be transported to the 1750s To the east coast of India, the city of Calcutta, and the surrounding area, where a company of British merchants known as the East India Company are busy trying to get rich, avoid paying tax to the local ruler, and sticking it to our old enemies, the French. It's a complicated time, but I'll try my best to break it down and explain it in a way that makes sense. This is a short three-part season of the podcast. A chance for me to draw breath after a deep dive we took into the history of the Anglo-Zulu War of 1879. Today we're laying the foundation stone of future seasons where we will examine, amongst others, the Sikh wars and the Indian mutiny. Conflicts that have always fascinated me. This season is also an experiment in trying slightly shorter, more concise episodes that will allow me hopefully to post them a little bit more often. Let me know what you think or if you prefer the less regular but longer, meteor episodes. I don't claim to be an expert on the Battle of Plassey, but in the course of researching this series, I've learnt a lot and developed a deep love for the era. I hope that you will too. So without further ado, pick up your musket, put on your trusty red coat, and let's show the world what a handful of British troops are capable of. Let's transport ourselves back through the centuries to the Indian subcontinent. Even now, India can seem like a culture shock for many Western travellers. So I can only imagine how delightfully alien and exotic it seemed to the handful of British soldiers, traders and adventurers who were based there in the 1750s. The weather, the food, the religion, the clothes were vastly different to anything in Britain. It was a place where Europeans often died quickly, unable to handle the rigours of the climate and the local microbes but it was a place where vast profits could be made, reputations could be cemented, and men with an urge for war and adventure could satisfy all of their wishes. The British Honourable East India Company had had a foothold on the subcontinent since the early 17th century, and by the time of our story they controlled trading posts at Surat and Bombay on the west coast of India and Madras and Calcutta on the east. India was a region in flux, After the collapse of the Mughal Empire at the beginning of the 18th century, it became a place where local strongmen and brigands could carve out empires for themselves. Afghan invasions and local power struggles added to this feeling of anarchy. Meanwhile, the East India Company were in direct competition with the French, and to a lesser degree the Portuguese and the Dutch. All of the European powers were keen to exert their influence with the local rulers and make as much money as possible. In fact, to be fair, at this time, the British government had no real interest in territorial expansion or nation-building in, in India. The only thing that they or the company directors cared about was cold, hard profit. But the war of Austrian succession in the 1740s had seen fighting flare up between the British and the French across the globe, and India was no exception. The company found itself literally battling its French rivals for control of Madras and Pondicherry, Small campaigns compared to those in Europe, but important for showing the local rulers the power of European arms and training. At the conclusion of the war, neither side were able to claim any great glory, but the scene was set for further showdowns. Both Britain and France began sending more resources to the subcontinent and vied for yet more influence with the local states. In many ways, the army that was in India at this time wasn't really a British army at all. There was only one line infantry regiment which was represented at Plassey, and that was the Ninth Foot, a.k.a. the Dorsetshire Regiment, and even they numbered less than 300 men on the day of the battle. Most of the available soldiers were Indians, or men of mixed heritage, who were often referred to as Portuguese. The white recruits who served in the East India Company at this time were generally quite a poor bunch, many not suitable for the regular army, which, to be fair, given the lax recruiting standards of the time, speaks volumes. There was also a lot of Swiss, Dutch and other European mercenaries amongst them. The pay wasn't great and promotion was glacial. It was far from an elite force. Like their counterparts, the British regulars, most of the company troops wore distinctive red coats, though they were generally cut shorter and lined with cotton rather than wool. And so, back to our narrative. It's now 1756, Bengal, the state where Calcutta is located, is the richest state in India. It's the economic powerhouse of the region, but it's a precarious one. Its vast population of over 20 million is ruled by a small Muslim elite who now feel undermined by the growing influence of the British. A new nawab or ruler, has just inherited the throne. An impetuous 21-year-old, Siraj ud-Daulah, who who is determined to show the British who's boss. By the way, I'm not 100% certain I'm pronouncing his name perfectly, but do bear with me. It's the best I can do. One of the new nawab's first diplomatic moves is to order the British to stop work on their military defences at Calcutta. Roger Drake, the governor of the city, makes no attempt to appease the young nawab; He refuses to stop the work and continues to act in a heavy-handed manner. Siraj is livid and declares his intention to annihilate these cheeky white upstarts. His first move is to immediately besiege the small British trading factory at a place called Kasim Bazaar on the Hooghly River, north of Calcutta. By the way, I'll stick some maps to give you a better idea of the geography on my website, www.redcoathistory.com. So it's probably worth having a look there if you just want to get a better sense of the geography. On the morning of the 20th of May, much to his surprise, William Watts, the chief of the factory, wakes up to find his post surrounded by thousands of Indian troops, turbaned and heavily armed. Watts and his 50 poorly armed company troops are trapped. At first, they think it's just an attempt to intimidate them into paying a large sum of money, and and the Wab's army will soon leave. But after a few days, it becomes clear that isn't the case, and the conflict now looks imminent. The factory is in no fit state to withstand a siege. Its walls aren't strong, there's no defensive ditch, and the whole structure is overlooked by nearby houses. The handful of cannon that Watts has have honeycombed and rotten carriages. A prolonged defense is out of the question. At the beginning of June, Watts leaves the compound to negotiate with the Navab. He's roughly handled, forced to sign a document confirming that the British would stop work on their defences in Calcutta and intimidated into surrendering. It was all too much for Lieutenant Elliot, the senior military man at the factory. Disgraced and probably fearing torture, he promptly shoots himself. The road is now clear for the Navab's growing army to march on Calcutta and throw the British into the sea once and for all. Calcutta wasn't a well-defended city, as the contemporary chronicler Robert Orme writes. The river Ganges forms a crescent between two points, the one called Perrin's Garden and the other Sirman's Garden. The distance between these, measured along the bank of the river, is about three and a half miles. Between the two points is Fort William, a building in which many an old house in this country, i.e. England, he means, exceeds in its defences, so in other words its defences were crap, <laughs> he carries on. It is situated a few paces from the riverside, on the banks of which runs a line of guns the whole length of the fort from north to south, and this is the only formidable part, as it is capable of annoying ships in the river. The ends of this line are joined to the two bastions of the fort nearest the river by a garden wall, which would resist the shot of one six-pounder, but which would be forced by the second Opposite to the two bastions mentioned are two of us inland to the eastwards, but within 30 yards to the north and 40 yards to the south, the bastions are commanded by large houses. To the eastward, inland, the top of the church commands the whole of both the northern and eastern ramparts. Not an ideal situation then, not particularly strong walls, your cannon pointing in the wrong direction, and a small garden wall, all that stands between you and the enemy. The fort was built in a style that was already outdated even, the, even in the 1750s. It lacked a sloping glacis and a surrounding trench. Even those guns that Orme mentions still hadn't been properly mounted and were almost useless. Powder was plentiful but it was damp and unreliable. One extra defensive position that the British did have was a large ditch known as the Maratta Ditch that meandered for a length of four miles around the sprawling suburbs of the town. It was useful, but it was too long for such a small garrison to defend properly. At a council of war, some of the officers suggested falling back to the fort, demolishing the houses that overlooked the walls and enlisting the entire city in its defence but they were overruled, and it was decided that the small force would be stretched very thin in an effort to defend a long perimeter around what was known as White Town, or the European Quarter. A lack of sources, or at least what I've been able to find, means that it's hard to say exactly how many troops were available to the British at this point, but it seems that sickness, men on detached duties, and some who had simply just disappeared, left the company with around 200 soldiers a tiny amount for the gargantuan task at hand. A local militia was quickly raised from amongst the white and mixed population. That added another couple of hundred untrained but well-motivated men to the ranks. All in all, the force was still far too small, badly equipped and poorly trained. Also, most of the local Indian civilians that the British were relying on to help with strengthening the defences, cooking food and general logistics support, simply melted away when the Nawab's army approached and they were approaching in numbers. Tens of thousands, some contemporaries putting that figure as high as 50,000. It was a formidable enemy. Despite all of these problems, time was on the side of the British. The monsoon rains were expected any time soon. They would make supplying the besieging army difficult. If the Redcoats could hold out until then, the Nawab's army would be forced to withdraw with their tail between their legs. But the Navab wasn't stupid, he was aware of this time pressure, and he forced-marched his men 160 miles in 11 days. Not an easy task given the lack of roads, steaming hot weather, and the fact that their column included heavy artillery dragged by lumbering elephants and oxen. Not easy to manoeuvre those across cross country, I should think. This huge column of men and animals reached the town of Hooghly by the 15th of June. And then the following day, the advanced guard arrived at the outskirts of Calcutta. On arriving in Calcutta, the Nawab's army immediately attacked. The main point of their assault was at a place called Perings Redoubt, next to the Chitpur Bridge. The fighting was heavy, but a small and resolute force of men under Ensign Picard were able to beat them back with heavy casualties. Picard was clearly an effective officer, with that much-needed attribute of balls of steel. After a heavy afternoon of fighting, he was aware that the Nawab's army had gone quiet. He suspected that they had had their evening meal and settled down for the night to sleep. Taking advantage of surprise, speed and violence of action, he led his small force across the bridge. They advanced quickly, spiked a number of the enemy guns and killed many of the Nawab's troops before retiring back to their position without the loss of a single man. But despite small tactical successes like this, there was no way that the tiny, massively overstretched British force could maintain their long perimeter against overwhelming odds. One by one, their defensive batteries were overran and the force was pulled back to Fort William. But this badly sighted, poorly built and lightly armed fort didn't offer much protection for the troops and things quickly went from bad to worse. An attempt was made to evacuate the women and children onto boats but it turned into a chaotic scene with people drowning and the officers and men sent to escort them, fighting to get aboard the boats themselves. The governor, as well as a number of senior officers, decided to abandon their men and save their own skins, sailing away in the few boats that were available. With them went any chance of an orderly retreat that may have redeemed a little British honour. Those left at the fort, now angry and abandoned, focused their attention on finding booze, and many drank themselves into oblivion. The 50 or so Dutch mercenaries that were an important part of the force deserted, and those few brave souls that remained on the battlements watched as the Nawab's troops burned down all of the surrounding buildings in preparation for their final assault. Artillery pounded the walls, kicking up clouds of dirt and dust, while sharpshooters picked off the defenders one by one. On the morning of the 20th of June, 1756, the enemy infantry launched a large assault. They were repulsed, but in doing so, the British suffered very heavy casualties and used up most of their ammunition. Shortly afterwards, on the same day, later in the afternoon, another confused and desperate scene took place. An enemy negotiator came forward to discuss terms. A flag of truce was raised in the fort and the men put their weapons down to relax. As they did so, the Navab soldiers crowded up against the walls and a Dutch traitor inside the fort opened one of the gates, allowing the Indians to swarm inside. Anyone who put up a fight was quickly butchered, especially the feared warriors in their red coats. Eventually, after a short but chaotic fight, the fort was surrendered and the calm returned. Prisoners were rounded up and the Navab appeared. He promised fair treatment to the British who were now commanded by a civilian called John Holwell. It was then the infamous black hole of Calcutta incident occurs. The historian Samuel Charles takes up the story. So far, everything seemed to be going well. The native soldiers had plundered the Europeans of their valuables, but did not ill-treat them. And the Mohammedan priests were occupied in singing a song of thanksgiving. Suddenly the scene changed. Some European soldiers had made themselves drunk and assaulted the natives. The latter complained to the Navab, who asked where the Europeans were accustomed to confine soldiers who had misbehaved in any way. He was told in the black hole, and as some of his officers suggested it would be dangerous to leave so many prisoners at large during the night, he ordered that they should all be confined in it. The native officers, who were enraged at the great losses inflicted on them by the defenders, applied this order to all the prisoners without distinction, and to the number of 146 they were crowded into a little chamber intended to hold only one or two private soldiers. It was only about 18 feet square and was one of the hottest nights of the year. So you probably heard of the black hole of Calcutta incident but might not know all the details. Holwell, who was the man in charge of the British, has left us his own horrific account of what followed. Figure to yourself, my friend, if possible, the situation of 146 wretches exhausted by continual fatigue and action, thus crammed together in a cube about 18 feet in a close, sultry night in Bengal. There was only two windows strongly barred with iron from which we could receive the least circulation of fresh air. What must ensue appeared to me in lively and dreadful colors. The instant I cast my eye round and saw the size of the situation in the room, many unsuccessful attempts were made to force the door but endeavours were in vain and fruitless. We had been but few minutes confined before every one fell into a perspiration so profuse you can form no idea of it. This consequently brought on a raging thirst. Various expedients were thought of to give more room and air. To obtain the former it was moved to put off their clothes. This was approved as a happy motion, and in a few minutes I believe every man was stripped, except for myself, Mr. Court and the wounded. Now everybody, excepting those of us situated in and near the windows, began to grow outrageous and many delirious. Water, water, became the general cry. And the old Jemadar, here he means the god that he tried to bribe earlier in the night to release them. Let me carry on as him. Taking pity on us, ordered the people to bring some skins of water. Little dreaming, I believe, of its fatal effects. This was what I dreaded. I foresaw it would prove the ruin of the small chance left of us. The water appeared. Words cannot paint to you the universal agitation and raving this fight threw us into. Basically, the only container they had for water was hats. Full hats of water were passed through the bars by the friendly guard but there was such a fight for it that very little was drunk by those who needed it, much of it being spilt in the kerfuffle. He continues the story. Oh, my dear sir, how shall I give you a conception of what I felt at the cries and ravings of those in the remoter parts of the prison, who could not entertain a probable hope of obtaining a drop, yet could not divest themselves of expectation, however unavailing? and others calling on me by the tender considerations of friendship and affection, and who knew they were really dear to me. Think, if possible, what my heart must have suffered. Many, forcing their passage from the further part of the room, pressed down those in their way who had less strength, and trampled them to death. This scene of misery proved entertainment to the brutal wretches, without he means the gods, but so it was, and they took care to keep us supplied with water that they might have the satisfaction of seeing us fight for it. They held up lights to the bars so that they could not miss any of this inhuman diversion. I want to jump on a bit here to the part of his account that brings home the lengths they would go to to taste any moisture in their mouths. Whilst I was at this second window, I was observed by one of my miserable companions on the right of me in the expedient of allaying my thirst by sucking my shirt sleeve. He took the hint and robbed me from time to time of a considerable part of my store. Our mouths and nose often met in the contest. Gosh, can you imagine being so thirsty, you're willing to suck the sweat off another man's shirt. And so, through a combination of a wish for retribution, indifference, and maybe just old-fashioned bad luck, many of the British survivors of the battle now died of dehydration and exhaustion in that cell. It's thought that less than 25 survived the night, and some of them died later on because of their experiences. I can't even begin to imagine the horror of that scene. But it's a horror that did grow in the telling, and that went on to fuel the British wish for revenge and their need to reassert themselves across India. The Nawab, siraj ud Daoula, had proven that the Europeans weren't invincible and they couldn't do as they pleased in India. But it also now angered the British and given them a hunger for retribution that would soon need satiating. And so, with the British embarrassed and well beaten, this seems like a good place to wrap up the first part of our Battle of Blasi season. In the next episode, we'll meet a man whose name still echoes down the centuries, Robert Clive. And we'll be there at the dawn of the British Empire in India and the coming of age of the British-led Indian sepoys who were to become so important to the British Empire over the following two centuries. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share the link with friends and on your social media as I'd love for this show to grow and for a whole new generation of people to learn the stories of the British military and this country's rich history of arms perhaps colonial wars aren't fashionable anymore but i'm going to keep going with talking about them because the men who fought and died for our country deserve to be honored and remembered and that's what i'm trying to do with the Redcoat history podcast thanks for helping me to do that anyway be sure to maintain your discipline don't steal the officer's grog and above all else keep your bloody powder dry we're going to need it